May I invite your attention to the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 at verse 1. You follow in your copies as I read that which is inerrant, infallible, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. I want to start this morning by telling you a story that I don't think I've told you before. Um, It happened 25 years or so ago. It was when I was doing my doctoral work, and um, uh, if you know at least the course that I was in, or the the school that I attended, there was two parts of it. There was the classwork, and then there was the dissertation. You had to write a book. I wrote a book. Uh, it's in my office. Uh, I hope you never see it, because it's awful. It's it, it's awful. Um, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> it was enough to get me through that thing. But anyway, I, I, as I recall, uh, there were three years of classes, two weeks in January and two weeks in July. So you went to school for two weeks, and then you came back in the summertime. You did that for three years. And one of the professors that was used uh, where I went rather frequently was a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. You might remember that, or might know that name. If you don't know R.C., you can turn on any Christian radio station. You'll find him on there. He's still still alive, still kicking, and, and a great spokesman for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. But anyway, while, you know, we're up there, um, and you're, you're away from home in, in temporary housing for a couple of weeks. And so... Over the course of a couple of those, um, we developed quite a little sweet friendship. 
Actually, there was four of us. It was R.C., his wife, Vesta, Chuck Green, a good friend of mine, and me. And the four of us spent a lot of time together after class. We would... Uh, we went out to supper together several times. We would go to Swinson's and have ice cream. And, and um, we would go to his, uh, they, the seminary had rented him an apartment. And we went to his apartment and he played the piano and showed us dance steps that he had learned in the latest dance course that he was. I mean, it was just really a, a fun time. And we would laugh a lot. I almost got kicked out of a Swinson's one night because we were too loud. And um, <laughs> imagine that. Um, but, but anyway, it was just a, a sweet time. But uh, he made it very clear that once class started... Uh, I was to treat him as the professor, and I did, except for once, um, and he didn't like that at all. But but anyway, um, so we had developed this sweet friendship, and one of the classes that he taught was a course on what was called communication. And one of the exercises in, in that course was that each of the students was assigned a text. Um, they were assigned it. Right in the class, you had no time to prepare it, and what you were asked to do is to come to the front of the class and simply read the text. So you didn't have to preach it, you just had to read the text. Now, I don't know whether he did this on purpose or whether it was just because of alphabetizing things, but he saved me for last. Uh, there went about 15 in the class, and it went over two or three days. He would, he would critique afterwards and all that business. But the, um, the text that he assigned me was Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And he did it with a little sly grin and, uh, <laughs> let's watch this. And because, as you can tell, this is a genealogy, as you know, and it contains a lot of names, a lot of hard-to-pronounce names. It's one of those texts that that really we almost are tempted to skip once we start the New Testament because <clears throat> it's it's one of those throwaway things almost. You know, it's... Uh, we, 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 you know, we, we, it's, um, it's, it's certainly not a text that I've ever heard anyone say, I drew great inspiration from that text. No, I mean, it's... Um, it's um, I hate to use this word, but people would call it, let's say, boring. All these begats and all that business. Well, that all changed for me. Not not the day that I read it, but it, it all changed for me when um, a, another preacher explained to me at least one of the purposes of genealogies. And when I understood, not the only purpose, but one of the purposes for genealogies, this text began to vibrate with life. In fact, this is an overused word in in our circles, but I I would dare say it became exciting. And I want to explain that to you this morning, why this text, at least for me, Contains such thrill. So, um, bear with me. The, 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 the explanation that really kind of helped me turn the corner with, with genealogies is this. Um, the point of genealogies is, at least 
part of the point. In, in genealogies in ancient times were not were not simply a piece of history. They were not intended to be just a, another part of the historical record. Genealogies were like resumes. You know what a resume is, don't you? They were they were like a resume in that people's whole sense of social standing that came from what family they belonged to. Um, it, it was the way that I that I became known by by describing for you the great people in my family of the past. <clears throat> I established my worth and my my sense of dignity in the community via my resume slash genealogy. But then, as well as now, people tampered with their resumes. Um, They left out portions of their genealogies that weren't particularly flattering. For instance, Herod the Great is known to have left out huge portions of his genealogy because those people were criminals and thieves. Let, Let me say it like this. Let's imagine that we were putting together our resume... And back in our beginning, our college days, we went to a college, and um, after the first semester, we got kicked out. We got kicked out of that school because we got uh, oh, we got caught cheating on a math exam or something. We got kicked out. But we went on to College B, and uh, you know, got our heads screwed on, and and uh, did fine, and graduated, and went on. And and now we're putting together a resume. The temptation would be very great, would it not? To leave off our resume, College A. Wouldn't it? Because the, the, the purpose of the resume is to, is to make us look good. Um, so we might not want to include things that were, um, unseemly. So, um, If you understand that little insight, then ladies and gentlemen, this passage will vibrate with life for us. Let me me explain why. Gang. Instead of avoiding the unseemly in this genealogy, Matthew seems to go out of his way to mention the most sordid, the most scandalizing events in the entire Old Testament. Let me show you just four examples of what I mean. First of all, perhaps the, the least sorted is that in this resume or in this analogy there are the names of five women included you can go back and find them later but five women are included in this genealogy that in itself is a scandal because folks women normally were left out of genealogies because and i know this is politically incorrect but in this culture in this period of history Women were not as valued as they are today. So you didn't include women, particularly if you were trying to establish 
your sense of dignity and worth in the community. No, no. You wouldn't want to include women in there because you appeal to your fathers, not your mothers. There are five women mentioned in this, in this genealogy. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is absolutely tame compared to the rest of this. I want you to notice it with me. Let's just start, let's start in verse six. Um, the whole David Solomon thing. Uh, look at there, it's a second half of, it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Ah, now we're talking. Um, now he, here's somebody that you want to include in your resume. Um, royalty, a king, soldier, a hero of Israel. There's somebody you want in there. But notice, ladies and gentlemen, notice what is said. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Guys, her name was Bathsheba, (laughs) in case you forgot. Why won't Matthew simply say Bathsheba? No. He says Solomon was born of a woman who was the wife of Uriah. Guys, do you know who Uriah was? Well, in 2 Samuel 23, Uriah is listed among David's mighty men. Uriah was one of David's better friends. And you know how he was repaid for being a friend of David? Oh, David seduced his wife, impregnated her, and then arranged to have... Uriah killed on the field of battle. Why would Matthew, why would he not simply say Bathsheba and avoid that whole ugly event of Uriah's wife? He's making a point, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll show you the point in a minute, but but, ladies and gentlemen, we're not done. Look at the, the other side of David's, not, not, not his children, but his forebears. It's, um, it's up in verse 3. No, it's up in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Look at that stuff there in verse 5. You're told there... Um, that his great-great-grandfather, David's, that is, David's great-great-grandfather was a guy by the name of Boaz. Okay, that's a plus, uh, isn't it? Well, do you know who Boaz married? He married a woman by the name of Ruth. That's a nice story. You know, you've had a Bible study in the book, in the book of Ruth, that four chapter little book right there after Judges. It's a sweet, quaint story. Do you know who Ruth was, ladies and gentlemen? She was a Moabite. That means she's a Moabitess. That means a female Moabite. She was a Moabite. Oh, and, 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 and by the way, did you notice who Boaz's mother was? Her name was Rahab. Do you know who Rahab was? Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. 
She lived in the city of Jericho. And when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Rahab was the prostitute that hid the two spies uh, in exchange for her life. Rahab went on to mother or, or mother Boaz, who then married a Moabite, who is a descent, who is a forebear of David's. Ladies and gentlemen, all of those things that I've just mentioned to you were, were things that by law, at least by Mosaic law, prohibited you from even entering the presence of God. Prostitution, murder, adultery. Not to mention the fact that we've got a Moabite in there. These people that are, that, whose names that you're reading here, they are people who were, they, they were moral, racial, religious, gender outsiders. These outsiders have become have become part of a royal lineage. The outsiders have become insiders. But we're not done, folks. What's this? What's a little prostitution when you compare that to this story that you find in verse three? This Judah Perez Zara Tamar story. Boo. You know that story? By the way, Perez and Zerah are twin brothers, born of the same mother at the same time, and that's why they're twins, you know? Um, but um, they were born of a woman by the name of Tamar. I, I mentioned this story several years back, but Tamar was a woman who disguised herself as a prostitute. And she seduced her father-in-law into purchasing her services. When it became known that Tamar was pregnant, when, when, when the father-in-law heard that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, his response was, I want a burner at the stake. Not realizing that he was the father. So, to that list of um, murder and prostitution and adultery, we need to add incest. Um, all of this in the thing that is supposed to make me look good. Ladies and gentlemen, that's stuff that you want off of your resume, not on it. Besides, it's that kind of behavior that gets you shut out of the presence of God, according to the law of Moses. But here, in the opening passage of the New Testament, Christ is owning them. He's including them. He's including the excluded. He's, he's putting them in his family. Why? 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, at least broadly speaking, he's putting them in there to communicate to the rest of us that grace is greater than all our sin. No matter how bad, how low, how wicked, how out you may be, here's a passage that assures us that Jesus Christ is willing to include you. The moral and the immoral, all of us, we need Christ. Even the greatest need Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, not even the worst are left out. There is a Savior who has come for some broken people. He didn't come for all the together people, but for the broken. Not for the beautiful people, but for the the ugly people. Prostitutes. And kings. They all sit down as equals. The insiders, the outsiders, they all have the same need. And that need is for Jesus Christ. A Savior. This Savior. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say this before. I don't want you to want a Savior. I want you to want this Savior. Because all the other Saviors out there won't save you. It's not enough to say I need a Savior. I need this Savior. God in flesh, who has visited planet Earth, a visit that he had promised as far back as Genesis chapter 3. Now, guys, here's another reason that I find genealogies or this genealogy exciting. Um, I don't know whether you want to do this, but you're going to have to trust me then. There is another genealogy um, listed at the close of the book of Ruth. Uh, it's Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 18. There's another briefer genealogy in there. And let's just say that I was Jewish. And I was a student of the Word. And I really wanted to, you know find out about this upcoming Messiah that had been long promised. And, and, I, and I come to this genealogy. The one that's included in, in um, Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And I'm a Jew, and, and I'm studying this genealogy, and I begin to see some things in this genealogy in Ruth 4. And I see, first of all, mm, okay, um, Boaz fathered Obed, and um, Boaz, my, my, he had a Moabite Moabite wife. Hmm. And his um, grandmother was a Canaanite prostitute. Ooh. Hmm. But then I see Perez is mentioned in verse 18. And I think... Oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Perez, isn't, 
<laughs> Isn't he the one that was born of Tamar? You know, the one that was impregnated by her father-in-law? Well, when he bought her services because she was dressed up like a prostitute? Mm. And then I begin to think some more. I think, well, wait a minute now. Um, um, as I recall, um, Sarah, when she um, gave birth to Isaac, well, it was almost a miracle birth because, I mean, she was 90 years old when she got pregnant. And then, then of course, Rebecca, who had those twins. <laughs> Why, that was a surprise because that's the first set of twins that had ever been born. You know, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob goes on to have these two wives, Rachel and Leah, and there's there's so much scandal about all those births that, you know, oh, here's the handmaid, throw her in, get that handmaid, have some with her, get, the, get all these women, and you know, making 12 sons. I begin to think about this thing and I think, wait a minute. What kind of Messiah are we going to have? Well, I can tell you this much. I bet you this much that when the Messiah finally arrives, I bet you there are going to be some surprises about his birth. Just like all the great heroes of the Old Testament, there are going to be some surprises. Because all of our great forebears, (laughs) Abraham, I mean, Isaac, Jacob, all of the 12 tribes, Perez, Boaz, Moabites, prostitutes, incest. My, my. I bet you there are going to be some big surprises when the Messiah is born. Which brings us to verse 16. Which says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Mary. (laughs) Now that was a surprise, wasn't it? In fact, in this birth, God bypasses the whole procreated process. A woman is impregnated without the normal process of procreation. Mary is a virgin. How, how, how unlikely is that? Supremely so. But so was the birth by Ruth and Tamar and Boaz and Perez and David and Bathsheba. All of these things were shocking births, but nothing, nothing could have prepared me for the birth of the Messiah because he was to be born. Oh, yes. Perez, his birth, that was, (laughs) that's pretty scandalous. Prostitute. Impregnated by the father-in-law. But the Messiah. He's going to be born of a virgin. That's not shocking. That's not even stupendous. 
That's that's miraculous. And this birth, ladies and gentlemen, turns the world upside down. Just like the way Jesus is just like the way Jesus does to the world's value system. He turns it upside down. Guys, the world values pedigree and money and race and class. But if you know what is being said to you in this genealogy, something that otherwise would be thought of as boring, do you know what you're being told? You're being told that the Messiah turns that value system Upside down. All of that pedigree, money, class, race, that means nothing to Jesus. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the message that stares at you. In the opening verses of the New Testament. Verses that we sometimes would even call boring. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, even the mo- even in the most the so-called the most boring of texts, it is saturated with grace. Saturated with a story about a divine savior who showed up on planet Earth with enough pedigree and with a sufficient plan to save the excluded, to save people as wicked as I am. A Savior who pays a visit to a planet that He had made so that His people might know That they were loved. Our Savior. Our Savior has come. To sweep into his family. Those who would otherwise. Have been excluded. I want to tell you a story as we close. Because when when I saw this. I wrote it down because I wanted to use it on a Christmas Sunday. A year ago or so, I went to a movie. It starred Liam Neeson. And I love Liam Neeson. Um, <clears throat> Liam Neeson starred in The Schindler's List, which I consider the best movie I've ever seen. But um, so when it starred Liam Neeson, I was determined to go see it, and I did. And the title of the movie was Taken. And it was an upsetting movie. Liam Neeson was, um, he was an ex-government employee. His name was Brian Mills, I think, in the movie. <clears throat> he, um, he had a government job, and his daughter asked him one day what he did for a living. He says, well, he was a preventer. And she said, preventing what? And she, he said, <clears throat> I prevent bad things from happening. But he had quit that job because he had moved, his, he and his wife had divorced, and he wanted to move and be closer to his daughter, who had just turned 16. Her name was Kim. And so, 
he moves out to be close to Kim and has the birthday party. And, and then as the story unfolds, she is asked to vacation in Paris. And, you know, Liam Neeson, Brian Mills didn't want her to do that, but ultimately they got twisted into doing it and he was scared that, or, for her to do it. Anyway, she, she and a friend fly to Paris to vacation. And at the airport, she's meted by, she is met by some, some guys that are, <clears throat> but anyway, before the, 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 the first day is over, his daughter and this friend have been kidnapped, drugged, and are about to be sold into the sex trade. And there is this unbelievable little phone conversation that goes on where Liam Neeson speaks to the, the, uh, the uh, kidnappers and says, I have a skill set that makes life miserable for you, and I will find you and I will kill you. And then the guy on the other end says, good luck, and hangs up. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you, it's moving. Anyway, Liam Neeson gets on a plane, heads to Paris. He's going to find his daughter, and he has 96 hours to do it. And over the course of that 96 hours, he goes through this unbelievable extremes to try and find his daughter. And kills people right and left, you know, it's just, and every time he kills a new set, he gets closer to her. And then as you can imagine, at the end of the movie, he finds her and she's on a big old 95 foot yacht and, and it's owned by some Arabian prince and he's about to take her to who knows where. And he jumps off this bridge onto the boat and then of course, all these fights erupt and he kills all the people and he finally gets, and there she is. She's in the bedroom of this crown prince. And this another fight erupts and, and I mean, he, you know, does everything and finally kills everybody. And, and it's closing, of course, as Liam Neeson has rescued his daughter. And his daughter runs and leaps into his arms. And I wrote this down because I, it was, it, I'm quoting her. She, she said to her daddy, you came, you came for me. And Liam Neeson says to her, I promised you I would. None of his gifts, an iPhone or a karaoke machine or a new car ever communicated that he loved her until... He came for her. Just like Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, the message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ has come. He has come for people as wicked as we are. The gospel message is an announcement that because of who he is and what he's done, the excluded are included. never tire of telling you that. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that this is not, this is not about the gross national product. This is about 
Sinners being rescued by a Savior who is willing to include the outsider. No, God. Might we hear it afresh. And might our hearts leap all over again. But Father, for those who perhaps have never heard it before, would you give them ears to hear it now? That they can return to their Christmas tree knowing that they have already received the greatest gift, the gift of eternal life. Might Gracie Van be useful to you, O God, in proclaiming that simple message. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.